civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. There are 7 billion of us now on the planet, 7 billion humans, probably heading towards 9 billion in the next 50 or 80 years. There has never been a single species of large body of vertebrate animal on this planet as abundant as we are now. We know that from the paleontological record, it's an unprecedented situation. In ecological terms, it's an outbreak of population. We humans are an outbreak population because we have so exploded in terms of our numbers, in terms of our total mass, in terms of the amount of resources that we irrigate. We're cutting away through the tropical forest, building timber camps, building villages, killing animals and eating them, disrupting relationships between reservoir hosts and the viruses and other microbes that live within them. I say in the book, you shake a tree and things fall out. And that's one of the reasons why there's a drumbeat of increasing cases of these emerging disease, particularly viruses. We're driving a lot of species towards extinction or simply killing individuals and driving populations down. And we're offering ourselves as alternative hosts. Now, viruses don't have intentions, they don't make choices, but given opportunities, they will spill over into new hosts. And when they spill over into humans, they've won the jackpot, they've won the sweepstakes. This is an extract of an interview given by David Kamen to the podcast Science Talk produced by the Scientific American magazine. He is the author of the book, The Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, published in 2012. You've guessed it, this podcast episode will be about climate change and viruses. Our simon today is Esther Onyango. Esther is a research fellow at Griffith University, Brisbane, Australia. She leads a transdisciplinary research program on the impacts of climate change and vector-borne disease. With Esther, we talked about Kenya, microbiology, vector-borne diseases, planetary health, and influencing policy makers. Hi, Esther. Hello. Hi, Roxanne. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today, Esther, in those very weird circumstances while we are all pretty much locked down home. Yes. My first question, Esther, will be about your roots. I was wondering where you grew up and what kind of childhood you had. So I grew up in a few different places. I always like to jokingly refer to myself as a global citizen. But my early formative years were in Kenya, in East Africa. And I lived there till I was about 11 years old. And then my father got transferred to Switzerland to work there. And so I lived there for the next eight years. 
But in between, I came back to boarding school in Kenya. So I was leaving school within those eight years. And then when we were 18, moved back to Kenya and I was there for two years and then moved to the U.S. to do my bachelor's. I did my bachelor's there and my master's and then I watched there for a while. So I was there for my 20s, really, was spent in the U.S. And then I briefly moved back to Kenya uh, for about a year and a half. And then I was here in Australia. So my 30s, you know, most of my 30s have been spent in Australia now. So um, I've been fortunate to live in four different continents, four different countries in my young life, <laughs> uh, which which leads to a diversity of experiences. And I think this also shapes a lot of what I do with my work, you know, multidisciplinary thinking and pulling in from different disciplines, cultures, regions as well. Coming back to your roots, uh, what kind of childhood did you have um, in Kenya? Can you remember some some souvenirs? What type of souvenirs do you have from it? Uh, what kind of childhood? I, I was, um, there was a lot of outdoor stuff then. I was uh, number five after four boys. So I was uh, very much a tomboy. So <laughs> I hung around with the boys a lot. A lot of it was outside, playing outside, you know, trees, hiking or going down to the river. I think in that time when I was still growing up, TV wasn't such a big thing, you know, electronics, those came and it was at that time in Kenya, we had specific opening times. So the TV would come on at about 6 p.m. and we always knew that's when to go home and there was a limited time to watch that. But I have, I have fond memories of that. I mean, there's quite carefree. It wasn't a particularly difficult life. My parents were both educated. Uh, my dad was working the government and my mom was a school teacher. So she homeschooled a lot of us prior to starting school. So I remember by the time we got into first grade, then it was, um, you yeah, know, a lot of the concepts she had uh, instilled. Uh, she's uh, quite a disciplinarian as well. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of, you know, organization. My mom had seven children, so I guess she had to be very organized as well <laughs> to keep us all, yeah, organized. What kind of relationship did you have with your parents? How were your parents talking to you? Were you pretty free to do what you wanted to do in life? Oh, um, yes and no, I think. I think like most African parents of their generation, they were first in their family to go to school. And a lot of their generation wanted the same for their children. So education was very much emphasized and emphasized in the context of being key. And I think, you know, there were key specific careers that a lot of parents wanted their children to go to. I mean, uh, it became more relaxed as time went on, it was, you know, within that context, my parents also just really encouraged us to read a lot, to discuss a lot. I remember a lot of discussions around the dinner table on current affairs. My father was a big intellectual. He read a lot and would always um, give us little bits of knowledge. So from an early age, we developed that curiosity and inquisitiveness for the world and intellectual pursuits. A lot, a lot of it was spent around that. So I have to say it was freedom in the sense of encouraging us to, to explore curiosities, but also within this paradigm of there were specific careers that, uh, you know, they would have liked us to go into. Not all of us went into those specific careers. What are the specific careers they, they wanted you to go for? Well, mostly STEM careers. Doctors, lawyers, and teachers were highly regarded at that point. So those were, you know, good careers to go into. 
So you initially chose to study tertiary education, biological science, and then environmental science more specifically. What attracted you to science? I, I liked biology from a young age. I was always fascinated with how the body works and how everything regulates, how the different systems work together. And for a time, I really, I thought I would go into medical practice and that didn't happen as I'd expected, but I found myself slowly going into the research career path. Now, the odd thing is I actually didn't major in environmental science in school. I did a few units around environmental science, but my background is really in environmental uh, environmental microbiology, so very much lab science career. I came into environmental science much later in life, just it was a career shift that happened about 10 years ago, and here I am now. So so when did you get that echo fanning, and what happened realizing about, well, climate change and the environment, and what was the tipping point somehow? It was a gradual shift and I would have to go back to probably my experience in Switzerland because I remember the first time when we moved there and this was in the 90s, the early 90s, before climate change had become such a big thing. But they were quite environmentally conscious. And I recall we actually had our first week of being there and we put out our garbage and it was sent back because it wasn't separated. I mean, that was my first experience with, you know, separating waste into things you can recycle or reuse. And there was active uh, promotion of composting and minimizing your waste as much as possible. And when I moved back to Kenya and also to the US, I realized that kind of consciousness wasn't as much there as it was, but I kind of kept those habits and um, moving through the careers and then those slowly growing interest about global warming. Uh, I remember watching the documentary by Al Gore, The Inconvenient Truth, which really started getting me interested, you know, as a lay person in this issue of climate change, how environment really impacts on our well-being as well, uh, but also understanding this from a microbiology level, well, being in the lab, how just our environment and what we're, you know, at that micro level also impacts a lot on our health. The specific tipping point, I think, for me was in uh, 2010. It was a, it was a confluence of many things. I was just at a stage in my career where I wanted something a bit more challenging, something a bit more different for me. Also, some life events had happened and I made the decision to move back home, put in a resignation for my work and moved back to Kenya. And I, um, I didn't have a clear idea of where I wanted to go. I just knew I needed something a bit more dynamic, but with a, a, some kind of social aspect to my work, uh, which up to this point had been in the lab. When I moved back to Kenya, then I spent about three months just unemployed and um, trying to reconnect with my networks. And I connected with a former colleague who introduced me to their director that was about to start a project on climate change in rural communities. So looking at the needs of these uh, rural farmers and looking at their vulnerability and looking at ways to help them cope. So this was mostly geared around um, seasonal changes, rainfall and what are farmers doing. So it involved a six month immersion into this rural lifestyle, which uh was also another, you know, it, it was something quite new for me. So coming from the U.S. and also from my uh, upbringing in Nairobi and then straight into the rural environment. But I found over time I quite enjoyed it. And I started learning more and more about the environmental impacts, but seeing firsthand the impact on communities and their vulnerability. But I think more specifically the lack of knowledge around some of 
what these issues were. I mean, under, they, they understand broader conceptual level, understanding that, okay, climate change is happening, but not being able to really translate, like, what does this mean for me? And the need for solutions as well. How can we cope? And and also understanding that there were things that they were doing already that were adaptive. They just didn't frame it in that sense. So slowly, uh, successfully did this project and came up with very specific policy recommendations. And at that time, I was also in discussions with my boss, my colleagues, some of my mentors about going back to school to do my PhD. So when I, the opportunity came, I just pulled from this experience and my background and I wanted to pull in some social aspect into my work. So looking at how climate change influences health uh, of communities, but also, you know, focusing more on that, uh, pulling on my biological background around diseases and microbiology and to understand that. And at the time, health was just starting to gain traction within the climate change debate. Um, So it was actually a really good fit for me. It wasn't quite, oh, okay, I've decided this then, you know, things took off. I applied a few places and got rejected a lot because I had no background in environmental science, of course, and no background in public health. <laughs> and yeah, and I was literally trying to cross from experience in lab science research to doing large-scale ecological research. So of course, uh, very few people were willing to invest in me without some kind of you know additional masters or something. So Griffith University actually was the only university that liked my proposal for a few things. I mean, they liked the, the fact that it was multidisciplinary. Also, it uh, spoke up to some key areas, looking at some of the gendered impacts, looking at uh, solutions, of course, looking at uh, risks uh, to communities as well. They invited me for the PhD, gave me a full scholarship, and also gave me the training that I needed to plug in those gaps in, um, in knowledge that I had. Yeah, and so... Here we are. In your research work, you are interested in the links between climate change and health and more specifically vector-borne disease such as uh, malaria. In one of your latest research paper, you raised that approximately 3.3 billion of half of the world's population are at risk from malaria. And this number is projected to rise under climate change scenarios. Can you tell us what impact does climate change have on vector-borne disease and their spread? Any kind of disease spread has some kind of climate influence on it. First of all, let me just say vector-borne diseases are technically uh, diseases that are transmitted through what is known as a vector, which could be an insect, a fly, a tick, or a mosquito, as opposed to directly transmitted infectious diseases like the flu or the COVID, which is person-to-person. Vector-borne, usually you need an organism in between facilitating transmission. For the disease to, the disease cycle to complete, then you need that a host that will host your virus, parasite, or whatever. You, You need the infective agent, which is your virus or parasite, and you need that vector, which could be your mosquito, tick, or sunfly. So all of these three things work together to facilitate disease transmission. And all of these three things operate within defined climate limits, which are, you know, are dependent on the disease or the parasite or the virus that you're looking at. But with the example of malaria, you know, uh, what was happening, temperatures are rising. So the research was showing that temperatures
cases arising. So regions were, that were previously unsuitable for the disease because they were too cold suddenly became, you know, not suddenly, had become warmer, which facilitated the disease cycle to complete. And so you're getting, starting to see incidences of malaria in areas, in highland areas where it never used to be because temperatures have been slowly rising over time. So the climate does expand the distribution of the disease. It just makes more areas suitable for transmission. It will impact on the rate of development of the parasite. It will impact on the rate of development of the, the mosquito. And it will, things like rainfall will uh, impact on how many mosquitoes are there. It will create suitable habitats and it will create host density as well. And also temperature will also increase the rate of biting of mosquitoes. So all of these factors combined. And, and then you have human beings and, you know, temperatures are hotter, so they, maybe they're more exposure. So all of these factors combined then drive more increasing risks of diseases. So the, the, the world is projected to be getting warmer and warmer, So which means that the areas within which these diseases can transmit are going to expand. We might actually see them emerging in areas that had previously been considered low risk. The opposite effect will also happen because you have the lower thresholds, but you also have upper limits. So in some places, it could actually get too hot for transmission, but the evidence is overwhelmingly on the side of more areas are going to be seeing more incidences of disease. How are state health departments currently incorporating or acknowledging that factor? What are your observations on the field? I've seen you worked a lot in East Africa. What are your observations on the field on what governments have been doing uh, knowing that? Interesting thing about research is that there can be a wealth of evidence that actually shows that something is happening, but then the policy aspect of it is different sometimes. Sometimes the two don't match up. So with, with East Africa, there's been, there's generated a lot of research evidence showing that uh, linking uh, increasing temperatures to malaria, but policy action is still slow uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, also, there's uh, a siloed approach to malaria risk management. So incorporating environment into health adaptation plans is still very much an emerging thing and understanding that health environment or other sectors like agriculture need to work together to manage this action. So that is an emerging thing, but it's understood that that is the way to go multi-sectoral action, you know, different sectors working together. So is it a, a lack of awareness to start with or is it because there's other conflicting agendas and health is actually not a priority? Uh, no, I don't think it's a lack of awareness. I think the awareness is there. I think it's more a lack of the scientists and the policymakers working together to define priorities, research priorities, because sometimes the research happens in absence of policy input, and that might not be their priority. So it, it's maybe designing the research process together so that you understand, you know, what are the priorities and also what are some of the barriers uh, to adaptation, you know, financial or otherwise. But the experience is that when you involve policymakers right from the beginning, then it's more likely for them to uptake your findings. And also the other part of that is a field that needs to now be filled in between science and policy. So translating scientific results into very specific policy actions. So that also needs, you know, it's uh, one thing to put out the paper and the results, but what it means as far as policy action. So there's a growing field around that. So that, that is key, that link there to translate the science into policy as well. Yes, and we are 
seeing this with uh, the COVID-19, obviously, that translation between science and policy action, even though that's not a vector-borne uh, disease, the current uh, COVID-19 shows the relative unpreparedness of our modern world to fight pandemics uh, effectively. Does the research that you do and the learnings and findings on vector-borne disease have some insights for the crisis we currently face? Is there some takeaways there? I think the biggest takeaway, first of all, is the how interconnected we are and how a disease can travel around the world in just days or even hours sometimes. It can spread very quickly with air travel and the interconnectedness. I saw this quote once, which has always stuck with me, diseases know no borders, but we still operate within politically defined boundaries trying to manage this policies action. So the, the, the big issue is, is we need to move to transboundary action, you know, tackle threat of emerging infectious diseases because we are disrupting ecological systems and there's just going to be more and more incidences of a disease emergence and spillovers like the COVID-19. And we have to start thinking in terms of how these systems are linked, how human systems are linked to how human health and environmental health are linked and making that change. So there's a new emerging field called planetary health that addresses these links that looks at human health and environmental health and how they're linked together and how health and well-being of humans actually depends on health and well-being of the planet as well. So you can't separate the two. We need to take care of our planet in order to protect our health. And until we get to the point where we understand that we just need to take action together. We're not moving to transboundary as some kind of collaborative effort. This would help also in preparing for the next one as well, the next spillover event. Do you think that a spread of a virus like COVID-19 and a, a vastly spread virus and everybody being confronted to it in its daily life can help people understand that the destruction of uh, nature goes in pair with uh, more and more viruses appearing and disease appearing? I read uh, that a team of researchers identified 335 diseases that emerged just between the 1960s and 2004, and at least 60% of which came from animals. So do you think this can be a wake-up call for people to, to realize about those connections and also to realize about the importance to stop wanting to control nature and uh, destroy it? I, I think... It could be. I think it goes back into how we frame the messages and how we also fight, not fight, what's the word I'm looking at, how we manage the misinformation that's out there also in the midst of the, you know, the scientific evidence. Because there's a lot of uh, information circulating around conspiracy theories and manufactured uh, diseases. And I don't know why, but the general public is more likely to believe that it's something manufactured than it's our actions on the environment you know, that, uh, how we're disrupting ecosystems or clearing forests or land use. And that is actually putting us more and more in contact to these, um, these animals and the viruses that they carry. And it's more likely for them to spill over. So I think it's just concerted uh, communication and also education uh, for people to understand those links. And certainly if you have an example like this, this would be a good opportunity to highlight that and really bring it out as well. 
How do you find um, governments are, and you were talking about communication and the importance of, of communicating about it. How do you find the governments and maybe specifically the Australian governments, but I'm happy to talk about others, communicate on COVID-19? I feel like a lot of the science yet is not communicated or maybe that's left to the scientists, but I think I feel that the government, it's a lot more focused on protecting people and protecting the economy. Uh, the I, I don't know if I want to comment too much on that because it's it's an evolving, it's it's a fast evolving situation as well. And I feel like a lot of governments are really, we didn't ex it wasn't expected to get this, you know, to become this big this quickly. So it's it's a lot of learning as we go and figure it out what what's the best what's the best way to control this or what's the best message to put out there and how much action can we take without drastically also limiting you know civil liberties as well. So it's a learning space for a lot of uh, governments as well. Absolutely. In Go Simon and uh, the podcast that uh, are produced, uh, we are looking at ecofeminism as well. Uh, ecofeminism emphasizes the strong ties between women uh, with nature and protection of, of that nature. Is it something that uh, resonates with you? Yes, I feel so. I feel when we're not looking at the ties with nature and looking at protection of that and also brings to light our dependency on the natural world and how our impact on the world also then impacts on our well-being as well. So I feel like with my work actually, without having known it, kind of addresses those in its own way, you know, looking at the linked socio-ecological systems and how our ecological footprint or how actions on the environment feed back into our health and well-being as well. When you look at the at the links between uh, vector-borne disease and climate change, do you also uh, look at uh, the role of gender in health? Yes, I have uh, looked at that. And it's an interesting concept because you'd have to explain to people, you know, if a mosquito is coming to bite you, it's not going to have a preference for a woman because it's a woman. But it is the underlying systems, institutions, cultural beliefs, behaviors, the, the roles that are women are expected to do that put them at higher risk sometimes or higher probability of exposure to bites and more likely to get the disease. So it's about all of the institutions and structures in place. And it's uh, about helping people to understand that, you know, un unless we address those, then women, uh, for the most part, are generally more vulnerable in terms of uh, climate change and uh, vector-borne diseases. And this is mainly around the roles and the lack of decision-making uh, that they have sometimes at the household. And also some of the caring roles that women are expected to do. And then, then especially in rural communities, agricultural communities, the working in the farms or they're out in the farms, they're more at risk of exposure to bites as well. Do you feel they, they can have a specific role to play, women, in influencing policies and putting in place, like education, uh, and putting in place some programs to actually prevent those vector-borne diseases to, to spread further? I think women have a big role to play. I think the key is getting more women into positions and they can actually influence uh, decisions and policy. Because what I found is at the community level, it's actually the women who are more engaged in terms of getting the training that they need, getting the education that they need around climate change and its impacts. Uh, they're more likely to form groups or to try to get the community into groups for some action. The 
challenges come in sometimes you'll have women attending these trainings but when they get back to the household level then there's that capacity to actually decide that we'll do this as a household is what is lacking so the on the ground you find that they are more proactive more organized and they can come together quicker into a collective to take action so i think once we just elevate that into where you know they're also in positions where they can make decisions as well but also not forgetting that to get the women more uh, get traction with some of these decisions and we also need the men to come on board so i think uh, in some of my work also i've stated that like we tend to fall into this fallacy of gender becoming just a women thing without uh, including the men as well into these programs and i feel like un- unless they're also engaged right alongside the women then they tend to just see it as something for women which it's not Do you happen to face uh, sexism yourself while defending your ideas professionally, personally? I would say probably not overt. I think just not not explicitly, but just surrounding those of you have to it, it, there's a tendency to be a bit dismissive because yeah, it's not like climate change is going to choose man or woman and and then you, you still have the group of people who believe that, you know, we at a point where we are equal as women like women have just as many opportunities as men or have the same kind of leverage which uh, sometimes is not always the case as well do you believe having more women in position of leadership would progress the climate mitigation agenda more quickly i just i, I feel like maybe it wouldn't hurt to have more women in in those leadership position because sometimes i feel like the style of leadership that women come with is a bit different and it's also needed and can be you know women can be good transformational leaders and can come from a place of understanding and uh, being able to build up community support so i don't feel you know it wouldn't hurt to have more women uh, in these positions of leadership. I don't know if I could fairly say that it will progress the agenda quicker, but I think if you have more women engaged at the top, then you have more consideration of other factors. You know, it's not it's not a male-driven agenda as well. And you have consideration of those other differential vulnerabilities based on whether you're a man or a woman. Living in a fairly pessimistic world uh, with bad news, a succession of bad news, climate change, uh, that COVID-19 and the scenarios for the coming years are not extremely um, positive. How yourself uh, do you keep uh, being hopeful for the future? I think it's just looking at the action that we've managed still even despite all of this. <laughs> so, you know, even with climate change, look there's more and more people engaged at the moment. There is more people talking about it. There's uh, a lot more understanding of what needs to be done and you've got, you know, climate action even all the way uh, to our children who it's critical for them to protect the environment for their future. So there's work happening you know there was a Paris agreement that was signed which was historic there's uh, governments are committed to reducing their emissions uh, and so we are several steps ahead of where we are where there was a lot of skepticism and just disbelief but I also think in the midst of even covid we're learning from past examples with uh things like Ebola and SARS and MERS and action is being taken faster than it was 
and we're not shying away from extreme actions to protect ourselves. So I think if we look at it in terms of we are always moving forward, you know, there's there's a lot of things happening, but at least it seems to me like we keep taking steps forward and not really going backward at the moment. And there might be small steps, but incrementally that helps as well. I've shared with you two fresh from the press articles before this interview. The first one is from the website Climate Change News and was called Governments Urged to Attach Green Strings to Long-Term Coronavirus Recovery Plans. It was relating to recovery plans post-COVID-19 that some say need to embed strong considerations for climate change. For example, some voices are saying that governments should exercise cautions in supporting airline corporations. Do you think COVID-19 crisis can be an opportunity to push further the environmental agenda? I think so. We only have to look at what we can achieve with concerted effort. In the midst of a crisis, we are able to pull together and just take drastic action that is needed, that was needed to actually try and slow this down. So I don't see why the same cannot be done for climate action. I mean, uh, and if we just look at the evidence, you know, in China, I think there's uh, just the shutting down for two weeks led to a 25% reduction in energy use and emissions. And the recovery estimates as well, you know, the people is, uh, there's always that debate about transition to a green economy is going to cost a lot, but we're spending a whole lot more now with um, managing COVID. So where there's a will, like when, you know, when lives are actually, you know, directly threatened, then it's possible for governments to come together and actually implement drastic measures. So maybe it's for people to also understand that climate change is just as much of a threat And if we don't take, you know, we, we are capable of taking action. So it's just highlighting that that action needs to happen. And now the second article was published in the conversation and was called COVID-19. The cure could be worse than the disease for Th South Africa. And, well, I hate to cite his name, but um, we've heard Trump as well <laughs> saying that the cure could be worse than the disease, justifying to basically do not much uh, to find uh, COVID and claiming that a bad economy could lead to some suicides. That's a little bit what this article tells us with the South African uh, president uh, who makes the same analogy, outlining the risk of increasing uh, poverty in African countries and South Africa in particular. Do you feel full lockdown decisions are balanced enough considering the other risks on the economy, social stability? I feel like we just, it's, that whole um, article kind of um, sees it as a trade-off, one trade-off or the other trade-off the economy for, you know, for human life. But what I would like to ask is what is the cost of inaction? We might be focused on what the cost of drastic action might do to the economy, but what is it going to cost us not to act? How many more lives would be lost? How far would the disease spread? What would be the recovery times and what is the impact to the economy in that sense? So I feel like, it, yeah, it makes sense to act because you have no idea how far this could spread. It might turn out even far worse than if there was no action. Acting also saves lives. 
as well. So it's not a trade-off of one for the other. Are you actually shocked when you when you hear that uh, some uh, governments seem to imply that a few thousand grandparents in the way is is acceptable if it's to save the economy more broadly? Yes, absolutely. Because it shouldn't, I mean, maybe it's not understanding that this could turn out to be an even worse disease. And maybe it's not understanding that, you know, it, it might not end up just being a few grandparents that are affected. It could affect you yourself, the decision maker, your family, immediate. So it's kind of, I don't feel like there's a trade-off for human life. With malaria and the vector-borne disease, is the economy often uh, sometimes pulled out of the hat as an explanation of the inaction or the apathy around those curing and also having policies in place to fight um, those diseases? Not really, no. I think the thing that uh, things diseases like malaria or other diseases suffer from is they've largely been eradicated from a lot of developed nations. So they become a developing nation issue where the endemic um, sub-Saharan Africa accounts for about 90% of the disease burden. So then it becomes less of a research priority in that sense. So I've never had it framed in terms of the economy, but sometimes it's like we, unfortunately, we're in the space where we're not the ones setting the research agenda most of the time. So those diseases then get pushed to the back. They're not a priority. COVID, as you can see, becomes a big thing because it's affecting everyone, you know, developed nations. Uh, in fact, for the first time, developed nations more than the developing ones, which is interesting than, you know, African nations. Yeah. Do you feel this will progress the agenda of vector-borne disease? Then do you feel you'll have more attention from Western governments and maybe more support financially when they realize that it can be something uh, they are confronted to at some point? And they already are. I, I think I read in the US they had some cases. Is it dengue? Dengue, yeah. yes, yes. I think at the very least it will forces it will it will generate questions around re-examining some of these um, they're called either the WHO used to have a list um, some of them are still on they're called neglected tropical diseases but to re-examine them because they're re-emerging and they're re-emerging in developed nations so like the one you mentioned just dengue used to be on the list but it's not anymore and there's going to be others that will re-emerge um, so at, at the very least it's going to start creating more interest in, around addressing these diseases especially in the context of global changes environmental change climate change, which then means shifts in patterns and distributions of these diseases. Would you have um, a book, a film, something you would like to, to recommend to our listeners so that they learn more about your topic of interest, but also more generally something that uh, inspired you? I think mine is more of a literary piece. It's the one that has inspired me for a long time. It was a, a piece that was written in the Atlantic in 2012 by a lady known as Anne-Marie Slaughter, who worked in the, the Clinton administration as a Washington high flyer and left after two years to go back to her academic job, which gave her the flexibility to spend time with her family. But the interesting part is that the piece was titled Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And it's an interesting read. I'd encourage a lot of career women to read that because for me, it really redefined my space as a woman and how 
conceptualizing what leading or what work-life balance means for me as a woman. I think the takeaway message from that is uh, for her, it was we've created this space as women where we've held up the male definition of leadership or achievement as the ideal. And that doesn't necessarily work for us as women, especially if you're trying to have a family or to balance kids and and also for our personalities. Sometimes most uh, male leadership is defined on, you know, go-getter or uh, the, the kinds of definitions that are attributed to male leadership are generally not attributed in a positive sense to women. So basically her thing was, you know, if we want to get to a point where we have that balance and we have to redefine what leadership means to us as women. And also elevating, not disparaging women who choose not to take that career life, but to be home with their kids. You know, at some point, when did taking care of your child, having a career become of a bit higher value than taking care of your family? So understanding that there is that choice as well. I think for me, there was a, there's, there's always that pressure, you know, career driven and also pushed high in most women. You push having kids to a later time in life. It was always, you, you get the feeling that either you sacrifice the family aspect or you have your family and you sacrifice the career aspect, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I think it's, it's, it's a good piece that I still refer to from time to time. Yeah, that sounds very inspiring. Thank you, Esther, for your time and your and your words. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to Karen Crossan, who helped with the editing and transcription of this episode. If you liked our podcast, please share it. This is the best way to amplify the voices of women we interview.